Good morning. Today we are actually going to start the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> I did a little bait and switch last week as I said we were starting our series in Matthew and then we didn't look at Matthew at all. <laughs> but rather we spent our time looking at the history of redemption from Genesis 1-1, from creation, all the way up to the start of Matthew's Gospel. And we pointed out four needs that the people of God had. And my point in doing that was so that we didn't just drop into the Gospel of Matthew with no context. We want to know what is the significance of this book in this place of the Scriptures. Why was it in fact the fullness of time when Jesus comes like Paul told us it is in Galatians chapter 4. So last week we saw that the people of God needed a Savior to rescue them from sin and the effect of sin. They needed a king, they needed a prophet, they needed a priest. And all of these things we saw were not designed to be met or fulfilled in different people, but all of these different things the people need were designed by the will of God to be fulfilled in one person, namely the Messiah, who was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 as the one who would ultimately and decisively crush the head of the enemy of God's people. So we did this overview last week, showing this, this longing, this anticipation for the coming Messiah. And the people didn't know exactly who that would be, but they knew that God had promised a deliverer, someone who would rescue them, someone who would sit on the throne of David and not screw it all up, but would obey God perfectly. So the Old Testament ends with kind of an undertone of frustration from the people of God. They are continually subjected to somebody else's authority, somebody else's rule, somebody else's government that restricts their worship and requires of them what they do not want to do. So they're kind of milling around in this darkness, as it were. And into that darkness into that waiting comes Jesus and that's what we see here in the opening verse of Matthew's gospel I don't read a lot of fiction but my favorite fiction book is Tolkien's The Hobbit and I know everyone loves the Lord of the Rings we have counseling available for you but The Hobbit is my number one all-time favorite for a variety of reasons. I won't get into that. But the book opens by the very first sentence says, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And Tolkien goes on to explain kind of, you know, his, his house and what the hole was and what he likes to eat and all this kind of stuff. But he's left out a really significant detail. He hasn't yet told the reader what a hobbit is. And so about halfway down the first page, Tolkien breaks mid-sentence when he's saying, now the mother of our particular hobbit was, wait, what's a hobbit? He says, I suppose hobbits need some explanation nowadays. And then he goes on to tell us exactly who and what they are, what they like, what they dislike, what they're good at, what the history of them is. And if we didn't know that at the beginning of the story, everything else we read there would be really kind of out of place. It wouldn't make any sense. The things that are humorous wouldn't be humorous at all. The things that are intense wouldn't be intense because we have really no clue why that would be that way. 
Well, this idea is not original to Tolkien. Matthew is doing the same thing. In the opening verse of his gospel, he is going to tell us who and what Jesus is. And if we don't understand that, if we do not grasp everything that Jesus is, and I'm talking in addition to everything we saw last week. So that was the general context. That was the overarching picture. This week, we are going to spend our time looking specifically at the person and the work of Jesus. And Matthew, I'm going to argue, does this intentionally at the beginning of this book so that as we continue reading, as we continue observing, as we continue watching what Jesus does, how he does it and why he does it, it won't be a mystery to us. So we have to start here with this opening description. So last week we have broad context. This week we have narrow context if you want to look at it that way. And I think I agree with the sentiment that Tolkien uses that he says hobbits need some explanation. I think Jesus needs a little bit of explanation in our day. I mean, do, do you have a robust understanding of who Jesus is? Not just who he was historically. I mean, right now, who he is. If you were to poll 20 random people, what do you think would be the answer if you said, who do you think Jesus is? What would you hear? If you asked 20 people in this room, who is Jesus? What would you hear? And I'm so eager for us as a church to understand the significance of what Matthew is saying in these opening verses, specifically the first verse, because it will shape our understanding of who Jesus is, why he came in the way he did, and it will make so much more sense if we can lock down what is being said in these opening verses. So my goal today is to show you from this first verse of Matthew who Jesus is, what Jesus is, and why it matters so much for you and I as we consider our response to this text. So, if you haven't done so, please open your Bibles to the first chapter of Matthew. We are going to read the first verse together. Matthew chapter 1, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, Son of Abraham. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we have an opportunity now, as we have gathered together as this local church, as we come together under the banner of Christ and what he has done for us, we have the opportunity to learn and grow together. And it's really easy to get off course. It's very easy to start reading our own interpretation into your word, to, to see things through our own lens or our history or our theology or whatever the case. But Father, I ask that this morning that your word would stand forth as clear. I ask that our reading of it, our handling of it, our dividing of it would honor you. I want to rightly divide the word of truth this morning, so please give me help in the preaching Give my brothers and sisters help in the listening and in everything that is said now this morning. We ask that Jesus Christ would be praised and glorified. He is worthy of all of our praise. And so God, please come and by your spirit, open our understanding. 
so that we can see what is in your word, we can hear what is in your word, and would you press it in to the corners of our hearts that we would come away from this morning loving Jesus more than we did when we came in. And this is a work that only you can do. So God, please do it. Raise our affections for Jesus because of what we read in your word here today. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. There are a lot of things that we can say about Matthew's gospel. There is a lot of technical data and thousands of pages of commentary written on authorship and date of authorship and the theological themes of Matthew and textual criticism and can we really trust the manuscripts and all these things. Now there is value to some of that, to understanding that we really can trust the Bible. That's not my main purpose this morning. So I'm going to start with more of a brief introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to get right into verse 1 because I think our time will be better spent there. But let me just give you a few things to know as we start Matthew's Gospel. The Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew. (laughs) Believe it or not, this is a hot take. Or at least it was 70 years ago. But it's written by Matthew about 50 to 60 A.D. Okay, so this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but before the destruction of the temple, 70 AD. So right in that spot right there, Matthew writes his gospel, and he recounts the things that he saw and was an eyewitness to in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And the emphasis of his writing seems to be twofold. I mean, there's many things, but primarily he is writing to a Jewish audience to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. And so a lot of what we see in his writing is going to be focused on or directed to ethnically Jewish people and their culture and history and background. Now, not exclusively, but I'm saying primarily. That's what he's doing. We also see an emphasis in Matthew about the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom, what it means to live in the kingdom. We're going to develop that as we move through Matthew's gospel, but those seem to be two high points, two major themes in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, long foretold and promised, and what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Now, because Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, we are going to track, we're going to follow him as he records all of these interactions, especially with the religious leaders. There's a lot of interaction in Matthew between the Pharisees and Jesus. And what Matthew is doing is he is convincing his readers that Jesus is superior to the establishment, in a way, okay? He's trying to convince them that this Messiah, who they rejected in large, was actually the Messiah. And so he articulates these things in such a way that Jesus is always the the right one. He always wins the argument. He silences the Pharisees. He dismantles their wrong thinking and their wrong theology. And Matthew highlights this because of who he's writing to. So that his readers, Jewish people, entrenched in Judaism, would come to see that Jesus really is the long foretold Messiah. And in so doing, he persuades them to trust in Jesus and his work. So this morning, as I mentioned just a moment ago, my goal is to show you Jesus. And we're just going to look at this first verse of Matthew's gospel, and I'm going to point out four things that help us understand what Matthew is doing and why it is so significant. 
and I can tell some of you are getting nervous because, oh, he's only taking one verse today and there's 1,071 verses in Matthew. That's a lot of Sundays. <laughs> we will not always go this slow. But I think when we're done, you're going to find out why this is worth our time. So, there are many, and you know this, I hope, many stunning articulations of Jesus in the New Testament, right? As you read through, you read some of these descriptions, and most of them, I think this is really interesting, maybe not significant, most of them come from the first chapter of certain books. Think of John 1. What's John 1 say? In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He, he came down to us and given us grace upon grace. Think of Colossians 1, that Christ is the preeminent one. He is before all things, that the earth was established by his creative power. Hebrews chapter 1 echoes the same thing. Long ago, at various times, God spoke to his fathers by the prophets, but now he's spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the worlds. We just get these stunning depictions of Jesus as we read through the New Testament. Well, I am arguing that what we see in Matthew 1.1 should be included in those massive Christology texts. Because what Matthew says here is, in some ways, more foundational than what we read at other places because of what he tells us about Jesus. So, let's jump in. Enough introduction. Let's look at the first phrase of Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now there are some people who read this and assume that when he says the book of the genealogy, it's just referring to what we're going to look at next Sunday. This list of generations from uh, Jesus back to David, back to Abraham. But that kind of limits the scope of what Matthew is saying in this opening verse. He is not just saying <clears throat> that this is the book of the family tree or the lineage of Jesus. There's something else going on. There's, there, the word that he uses for book here refers to a large body of writing, something that would have taken a whole scroll or both sides of a scroll to write, a whole manuscript. There was a different word for a small section. He doesn't use that. He uses this big word for book to tell us that what he's saying here is not just to do with the first little section, but this is the overarching picture. This Jesus that he's talking about is all over the Gospel of Matthew. And the words genealogy that he uses here also have dual meaning. It can refer to one's ancestry, just like we see it here in a moment. So if we say genealogy, most of the time we think, okay, history, family tree, we're going to go to Ancestry.com and, and figure out everything that happened. That is one of the good translations of that word. But it is more commonly used to refer to a beginning. Origin would be a good translation of that word as well. The, the start of something. Okay? Now, I don't want to be the preacher who's always saying, well, I know your English Bible says this, but let me tell you what the word really means. That gets annoying, right? We can, we can understand what God wants us to understand from our English translations. But this word, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you why I'm focusing on this word because I think that what Matthew is doing is he is making a connection back to the book of Genesis. And I'm going to explain why I think that. When he uses this language, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he is referring to a new beginning. So what does Genesis tell us? It tells us about the start of all things. It tells us about the 
beginning, the genesis of God's people, how God revealed himself to them and says, here's how I want you to live, here's who I am, and Matthew is using really similar language to tell his Jewish readers, who would have picked up on this kind of language, that the coming of Jesus means a new beginning, a new creation for the people of God. This is a new chapter for what God is doing in the history of redemption. Let me show you just a couple places that this is used, and I think it'll help you grasp what I'm saying. Genesis 2, 4. We read this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Well, there's no human generation yet, right? It was just Adam. And when God made the heavens and the earth, there was no Adam yet. So what is this telling us? Well, the word generations here is being used as origin as beginning. This is the beginning of the heavens and the earth when God created everything. Or consider Genesis 5.1. This is a much closer parallel to what Matthew says. Genesis 5.1. This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So here, the word is used to describe the origin, the beginning of Adam, and then goes on to address all of the lineage. So it's kind of being used in both ways in that sense. You tracking with me so far? So when Matthew writes something that is very clearly a parallel to this passage, so Genesis says, this is the book of generations of Adam. Matthew says, this is the book of the generations of Jesus. We should see the parallels. We should see that what Genesis is doing for the people of God in announcing a new beginning and tracking what God is doing from start to finish, Matthew is now saying, this is a new beginning. This is an opportunity for us to see the Messiah has come and it's going to change everything. Just like the book of Genesis changed everything, it tells us the beginning of everything, so the coming of Jesus Christ is going to change everything for the people of God. So when he uses this language, I'm saying that Matthew is intentionally saying this is a new beginning, that his primarily Jewish audience would have made the connection and understood this. And even just as, here's another connection, then we'll move on from here. So in the book of Genesis, which we happen to be studying right now in our small groups, didn't plan that, but it's really neat because it fits. So in Genesis, we see the origin, we see the beginning, and also we see the promise to the end, the snake crusher, who's going to come and reverse the curse of sin and establish his kingdom, right? We talked about that last week. In Matthew, what do we see? Well, we see at the beginning, this is the book of the genealogy, the origin, the start of Jesus and, and his kingdom and his people. And then at the end of the book, what do we see? Another promise. What, how does the book end? Jesus says, I am with you, how long? To the end of the age. From start to finish, there are so many parallels that we cannot ignore the fact that Matthew, a Jew, writing to Jewish people, is intentionally making some of these connections so that his audience would know this is the one. This is the one who is promised. This is the Messiah who has been foretold to us long ago. So he wants his readers to know this. And he wants to know that this book is about Jesus from start to finish. But just like Tolkien would do 2,000 years later, Matthew needs to tell his readers who and what Jesus is. He can't just say, Jesus has come. Yay. Who is he? Not everybody knew who Jesus was like 
we have pretty universal knowledge because of the scriptures, right? It was not the case back then. It was still localized. So what does Matthew do? He uses now three terms to tell us about Jesus. You can see all of these in verse 1. First, Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of David. And he is the son of Abraham. So let's look at each one of those and we'll point out some significance as we go. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, first we need to understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? It's a title of who he is. If you and I meet after the service and I say, Hey, good morning. My name is Pastor Jacob. Nobody assumes that my parents named me Pastor and Jacob is my last name. We understand Pastor to be the title, right? Well, it's the same thing with the word Christ. It's not who he is, it's what he is. So the word Christ, Christos, means anointed one, Savior. And so, therefore, it is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah. Okay, so when the Greek-speaking world, we talked about the Hellenization of the world, that means the, the spreading of Greek culture, that means everything's written in Greek. And so as they go back and they look at the Old Testament, they're translating words to mean the same things. So Christ, as we see it here, is the equivalent to Messiah. So when Matthew says Jesus is the Christ, he is telling his readers that he is the promised Messiah. Jesus is his given name, like Jacob is my given name, or Nate is your given name. That's, that's who he is. We're going to read about this in a couple weeks. When the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, his father, in Matthew one twenty one, he says this, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins. Now the name Jesus, Emmanuel, means God with us. So put this together. When Matthew says, this is the book of the origin, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, put those things together, we have God with us. God has come down with us to save us, to deliver us. That's what Jesus Christ means, as far as the etymology of the names. Isn't that great? How many times have you read Jesus Christ in your Bible? Thousands, probably. But do you understand the weight and the significance of what those two words are telling us? That God himself has come down in the form of his son, taken on human flesh to rescue his people, to save them, to be the promised Messiah. That's who Jesus Christ is. That's why it is so significant that Matthew opens the whole book with this articulation of who Jesus is, especially for his immediate audience, for the Jewish people. Hearing that the Messiah, the Christ, had come would have brought along with it this renewed sense of longing and just rekindled those fires of hope that finally there was going to be justice for them. There's going to be salvation for them. But we know that it didn't look exactly like they hoped it would look, right? Jesus is the Messiah, but he does not do what the people thought he would do. But he is the fulfillment of God's promises. Now many of the people who followed Jesus understood and believed him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the, the promised one. Peter makes this uh, declaration when Jesus is asking them, we're going to see this in chapter 16. Jesus says, who do the people say I am? And they say, oh, 
they say you're Elijah or you're a prophet or you're someone like that. And he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, responds and says, you are Ho Christos. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Oh, no, no, no don't say that. No. Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because you said the right thing. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father revealed that to you. So sometimes people say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Oh, yes, he did. He says it right here. You're right. And blessed are you for affirming that I am the Christ. However, there were many people who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, right? The religious leaders, by and large, the Pharisees, did not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Why? Well, for one thing, they had a wrong idea of what the Christ would do when he came. So as they look back onto some of the scriptures we covered last week, they are waiting for a deliverer, someone to free them from oppression, someone to overthrow government, someone to make an insurrection and free them from the tyranny of foreign invasion. So when Jesus comes on the scene, not preaching a message of, Fight, 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 but preaching a message of forgiveness of sins, humility, peace with God, they write him off as a fraud. This can't be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to ride in on a horse and kick the doors down. It's not what Jesus does. But Matthew writes to tell his people that this Jesus who has come <coughs> is the Messiah. When he calls him, Jesus Christ, he is telling his readers, it's him. It's him. Peter again affirms this. This is, this is where Peter gets it right. Sometimes he gets it wrong, right? But here is where he gets it. In the, in the Sermon of Pentecost, Acts 2, Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, that is with great confidence, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's him. It's him. We're not waiting for another Messiah. We're not waiting for another Christ. He's come. And that's what Matthew is saying by opening his letter and telling us this is the book about Jesus, the Christ. Second thing, he says that Jesus is the son of David. If you were with us last week, you know the significance of Matthew saying this. Because we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and we saw that God had made a promise to David that one day there was coming a king who would sit in his line, that is a descendant of David, but would sit on his throne forever. And we, we saw last week that this is not a temporary earthly kingdom, but God was promising what? An eternal kingdom. One that would have no end. And this is the first of several times in Matthew that he uses this term, the son of David, to refer to Jesus. And every time he uses it, he is referring to the fulfillment that Jesus gives to the promises made to David. Okay, When he is called son of David, there's a very clear connection back to something that David failed to do, but that Christ, now that Jesus, is going to succeed in doing and by connecting him to David, Matthew is telling his people, 
he is the promised king. He's the one who fulfills 2 Samuel 7. He always obeys God's law. In contrast to the human kings that we saw last week were all over the place and failed constantly, Jesus, as the king of God's people, will never fail. He will never fail to do what is right. He will never fail to do what is good. And he will perfectly uphold the law of God as he rules over his people. But as we move through the Gospel of Matthew, we see that this image of the son of David, the promised king, is challenged. It's not just widely accepted. People don't hear it and go, oh, okay, that's cool. There's some, there's some pushback to this idea. The problem is the same thing I mentioned about the Pharisees earlier. When people heard king, they heard conquest, right? They heard literal and physical deliverance from oppression, from government, from politics, from armies. But that's not the kind of king that Jesus came to be. And this is why you and I, just like these readers, must have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. If we are only looking for Jesus A, then when we see Jesus B, we're going to say, oh, it couldn't be him. He, he has to look like this. The king has to do these things. But we need to understand that Jesus is, at the same time, king and servant. He is lion and lamb. He is son of David and David's Lord all at once. You got a category for that? Do you know Christ in that way? Do you understand that it is not a contradiction for him to be strong and lowly at the same time? He is God. He can do that. And this is what caused the people to trip up on the son of David thing. They did not affirm him to be king because he did not act like what they thought a king should be. But Matthew knows the truth. And he proves out the kingship of Jesus by rattling off this genealogy that we're going to see next week. And he makes the connection all the way from Jesus' birth back to David. We're going to talk about the significance of that next week. So, Jesus is the Christ, the promised deliverer, the Messiah, the Savior. He is the son of David, the king who will rule over God's people. And the third and final designation that Matthew gives us is that Jesus is the son of of Abraham. Now here, here is where the coming of Jesus gets so sweet for you and I. And I say you and I meaning Gentiles. I'm assuming most of us in this room are not ethnically Jewish. Most of us are what would be considered here Gentiles, outsiders, foreigners. Well, almost everything we've seen so far, the, the descriptions and the, and the articulations have been directed towards God's people. It's been to the Jewish audience. The significance of going back to Genesis and seeing that mirrored. The significance of Jesus being the Davidic king. That's an Israelite king. So what's the hope for everybody else in the world? Well, here it is. Here's the hope. Connecting Jesus to David showed the rightful kingship, and connecting Jesus to Abraham shows the universal kingship of Jesus. You see, Jesus is not the king of the Jewish people only. 
He is not the Savior of the Jewish people only. He is, to quote the Apostle John, the Savior of the whole world. And John gives us a, a peek into the throne room in Revelation 5 and 7. And what do we see there? It is not just a congregation of Jewish people worshiping a Jewish Messiah. It is a picture of people from every what? Language, tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping a Jewish Messiah. Jesus is a universal Savior, and to that, every one of us should say yes and amen, because without that, we are hopeless. But Jesus is not tribal. He is not localized. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is universal. That's what Matthew is telling us by connecting him back to Abraham. Now you say, well, why, how does that work? Why does connecting him to Abraham mean that it is universal in salvation? Turn in your Bibles. Let's go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. And I want to explain why I can say this is so significant for you and I, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now listen for the similarity because this is very much like what God told David in 2 Samuel 7 in the, in the sense that it has a future fulfillment. God makes a promise. He fulfills it in the future. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the nations, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So do you see the promise there? What's being promised? What's being promised is a universal blessing. All the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. But not through him personally, through his descendant, right? Through his offspring. We said last week, that's the word for prodigy, children, descendants. So through the offspring of Abraham, someone in his line, the entire world will be blessed. And Josh mentioned this morning, the blessing is the forgiveness of sins. So this is not some isolated thing. We saw in Romans 4, the connection between Jesus, David, and Abraham. And we're seeing it right here again. Jesus, David, Abraham. And the significance of this connection. But which descendant would it be? So Abraham hears this. And it gets recorded in the Torah for the people of God. And they wonder, who will it be? Who's going to be the descendant that comes and fulfills all these promises? Who is ultimately going to be a blessing to the whole world? Who can do that? Well, Matthew tells us. The fulfillment of Genesis 12, 3 is Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. He alone is the fulfillment of Genesis 12, 3. And just in case we say, oh, that, that was to Abraham, that meant something different, that was, that was a different time, no. Paul makes this crystal clear. Listen to what he says in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. 
referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And with these three last words, he clears it up, who is Christ. So the idea that this blessing through Abraham was some kind of restricted blessing to the people of Israel gets bunked by Paul saying, it's Christ. It's a singular descendant. Not many, one offspring. It is Jesus Christ who is going to be a blessing to the whole world. How? By fulfilling all the promises of God, by hanging on a tree for you and I so that the blessing of Abraham might come to us Gentiles that we might experience the promise and the salvation of God. So while the main thrust of Matthew's gospel is for his Jewish readers, he does not ignore the fact that the purpose of the Messiah is to be a blessing, yes, to God's people, but also to the whole world. And do you see why I'm saying this is such a big deal, this this Abraham-Jesus connection for us? That salvation moves beyond a small group of people So that Christ is not a localized, tribal God, but he is a universal Savior. And praise God for that. Because the gospel came from Abraham to David to Jesus to the apostles to Monticello, Minnesota in 2023. We can trace our faith all the way back to the beginning because Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the whole world. So as we move through the book, as we see Jesus and his compassion towards the poor and the sick, as we see him interact with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, as we see him confront false teaching and have compassion on those who are ill, don't forget who he is and what he is. Just like Tolkien tells us, you've got to understand the main character or the rest of the story will make no sense. So as we begin the Gospel of Matthew, remember Jesus. He is the primary one in this book. There's all kinds of implications. There's all kinds of applications. But at the center is Jesus Christ. And just remember, I'm going to recap really briefly the significance of each of those things. That he is the Christ the promised Messiah, the deliverer who will defeat the enemies. He is the son of David. That is, he is the king, the rightful king, God's anointed king who will rule over his people. And he is the son of Abraham who expands the blessing of forgiveness of sins beyond a small Near Eastern country and blows it up to the entire world through the apostolic ministry and the spread of the gospel. Or to say it another way, he is Jesus Christ. Son of David, son of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, this is weighty. This is significant. And we cannot exhaust the wonder of this verse. Why would you do it this way? Why would you combine everything needed for your people in one man, the God-man, Jesus, because that was your plan from the beginning. So God, I praise you 
that all of your promises are fulfilled in Jesus. That we are not still waiting. We are not still anticipating. When is he going to come? Who is it going to be? What is it going to look like? But you have sent your son in the fullness of time so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would now spread to the corners of the globe so that salvation could be offered for all people. And God, I pray that none of us would leave here today without understanding the wonder of salvation that you have accomplished in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you did not limit it to a small group of people, but that you have spread your word throughout the globe. And may we be faithful, Lord, not only in responding to this salvation that you offer, but also in spreading the good news of our Messiah, our Jesus, our Christ Would you give us faithfulness in this, God? We need it. So please help us. Help us to understand Jesus. And Lord, I just just give the rest of this study to you now as we move through the Gospel of Matthew. Father, work in our hearts that we would understand more of who you are, more of who Jesus is, what he is, and that our hearts would be strengthened and encouraged as we interact with your word. So Father, thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray now. Amen. Amen.